The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 256. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those social media buttons, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan, M-C-C-L-A-N-A-H-A-N.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. McClanahanAcademy.com. It's always free to enroll. When you do enroll, you get a free course, 10 Myths of American History. And of course, I have seven courses available for purchase there. It's a great way to help support the show. You also get something out of it. Not only do you support The Brian McClanahan Show podcast, which is always free of charge, but you get these great courses, seven of them. Uh, ranging from a five-lecture course on secession or the Declaration up to a 54-lecture course on U.S. history, the second half of which is coming in the near future. Um, And if you do enroll in the Academy, you get the best deals on forthcoming courses like that second half of that U.S. history survey course. So you're going to want to get that. It's a great deal, great class. It's great for homeschoolers, great for lifelong learners. I've got tests. I've got reading seminars. I've got recommended reading, uh, all kinds of things. So you can use it as a curricula for your homeschool student, or you can use it yourself, however you want to do it. But it is the hub now of, of that uh, academy, and more to come. So go to McClanahan Academy, support me there. You can also support me by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Top of the page, you'll see a support tab. Click on that. You can donate uh, whatever you want to help the show, or you can get a book plate so you can get my signature on your books, all kinds of great ways to do it. You can also click on the shop tab at the top of the page, get your Brian McClanahan Show logo gear, t-shirts, Skins for your electronic devices, wall plates, stickers, all kinds of cool stuff with my logo on it. Of course, that helps advertise the show. If you do like it, also share it around on social media. Give it a like on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast, Stitcher, wherever it is, and uh, let people know that this is a great show and you really enjoy it. That way more people listen. All right. So all that said, let's talk about the, uh, the material for the week. By the way, of course, I always accept recommendations for podcasts. Just send them to me. If I don't respond, it doesn't mean that I don't like your recommendation. It just means I'm reading it and I just, I'm thinking about it usually. But um, this is not a listener-generated episode. This is something else, and it has to do with my Think Locally, Act Locally idea because it's, uh, it's a piece that attempts to refute that idea. Not me directly, of course, but the whole idea that federalism is somehow beneficial for America. You see, you have two different schools of thought in that particular regard. One is that federalism is great. Federalism is great because it allows for political communities to do what they want to do that re- and reflect the political character of those communities. So, uh, for example, you know, if one state wants to have a policy on gun ownership one way, then another state can have it the other way. And if one state wants to have a policy on marriage one way, another state can have another. You can take your pick and those states will reflect the political culture of the community. Now, one of the arguments against that, of course, is, well, this is going to lead to racism. This is going to lead to bigotry. This is going to lead to all these things. We, can, we cannot let that happen. And, of course, that's the Puritan mindset, right? Somewhere somebody's doing something I don't like, and so I have to try to make sure that doesn't happen. Like uh, when you saw this disaster of a climate 
town hall. I mean, that thing was so stupid and ridiculous. Uh, but um, you have all these people. We need to ban straws. I mean, everywhere. What? I mean, wh- what are you going to do about China? What are you going to do about making sure China doesn't pollute? What is the United States really going to do about making sure China doesn't pollute? Um, probably nothing. But, you know, uh, this is... <laughs> This is where people are. The political Puritans are running around out there making sure that everyone is orthodox in their viewpoint. Uh, and if you're not, then you're a heretic and you need to be dis- dis- disposed, right? So in one way or another, socially ostracized, politically ostracized, you, ostracized, you just need to go. So uh, that's the way the Puritans work. So you have this idea that somehow federalism is a way to actually increase peace in the United States. The other, of course, is nationalism, that nationalism will do this because if you can make everything uniform, this is the political Puritan position, if you can make everything uniform, well, then you get rid of this conflict. I mean, this is, this is the way dictators and tyrants work. You have to have the, the one culture and everyone has to get in line. And that's the way things are. And if you don't like it, you're exiled. If you don't like it, you're, you're a non-person, right? So this is the way things work. So I have this piece. It's by a guy named Donald Kettle. Now, Donald Kettle, is, uh, he's close to retiring. He is a uh, political science professor. Um, he wrote a book in 1992 that was actually a textbook that I used in one of my political science courses as an undergraduate, right about the time the book came out. It's entitled Deficit Politics. Um, uh, public budgeting in its institutional and historical context. I found the book interesting. It was assigned by my Marxist professor, and I think essentially this professor was saying, look, deficits don't matter. I mean, that was his whole point back in 1992. Deficits don't matter. We don't really need to worry about deficits. We don't need to worry about deficit spending. It's not a big deal. But the whole point of that book was to show that deficits were always political. That in the whole process of budgeting... You're going to have political give and take. You're going to have one side that wants, essentially, he says, it's about resources. It comes down to the, to the word power, right? It's all about power. You have all this money going in, and because there's money there, people are going to clamor over who gets to control it. You see, federalism, though, doesn't really look for that. Federalism is not about the states gaining money necessarily from the general government, though that does happen, and every state is slopping at the trough. The point of federalism is to... Uh, restrict the power of the central authority to make people do things they don't want to do. That's the point. And when you get down to this idea of power, I mean, this is where it comes into play. All throughout American history, the budgeting process has been about power. You can go all the way back to the first Congress and you'll find this. The, the issues that we had, the creation of a central bank, for example, was about power. Simply, it was about power. The uh, all of our Western land legislation about power, these debates over slavery and other things. It's all about power. And so in this particular book, Kettle says, well, look, this is actually a good thing. Partisan politics is a good thing. Partisanship, when you start battling over power, you're going to create conflict. And politics is about conflict. And this is fine. We should have this. Fast forward to 2019. So that book is written in 1992. Fast forward to 2019. And Dr. Kettle has had a change of heart. And this is an interesting piece, and it's not long, so I want to go through it because I think he's stating some things that are, uh, he's looking at things upside down. So in his opinion, nationalism would actually be the, the way to solve problems in America because um, you would have a consensus, essentially, a consensus. Now, he would say in his book that partisan politics leads to, he does say at one point, well, this can create consensus at one, uh, some way, but... He's looking for consensus. 
Consensus is not necessary. It's not necessary if you really follow the founder's design, and that is federalism, where you don't need consensus. You can have sections, you can have states that don't necessarily fall in line with everyone else. California can be California, and no one else has to suffer for it. If California wants to ban ban plastic bags and straws and make it to where they drive horse and buggy, and, uh, well, of course, that's going to create manure, which creates methane, and that's that's probably that's a greenhouse gas. I don't know what people are going to do. I mean, essentially, we just need to eliminate people, according to these. And Bernie Sanders essentially mentioned as much. We just need to eliminate people because people are the problem. If we want to save the planet, planet and to the left, then kill people. Save the planet by killing people. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, right? <clears throat> but that's what they believe, ultimately. Except for them. I mean, they're okay because they're good people. But the people they don't like could just be done away with. Um, so uh, the, um, the point of this piece is interesting. The title is Red America, Blue America, Why Political Polarization Will Only Worsen. Liberal and conservative states are both stirring things up. Very different things. Again, Donald Kettle. The Trump administration has stirred more action in the states than any presidency in recent memory. But the states are going in wildly opposite directions. Justice Brett Kavanaugh has, had barely settled into a Supreme Court seat last fall before many states began focusing on the possibility of overturning Roe v. Wade in 19, the 1973 case that legalized abortion. In his confirmation hearings, the conservative Kavanaugh called the case an important precedent, but 15 years earlier he had written that the Supreme Court can always overrule precedents. Anti-abortion campaigners immediately saw these statements as creating a crack big enough for a successful challenge to Roe. Well, um, first of all, it is true that the court can overturn precedents. If they couldn't, then we wouldn't have Brown v. Board of Education. Right? I mean, that was overturning a precedent which had been established in Plessy v. Ferguson. Or, um, I mean, so this is the way the court works. Uh, the entire incorporation doctrine overturned a precedent, which was uh, the slaughterhouse cases, which said the 14th Amendment did not incorporate the Bill of Rights. I mean, that was the first case to hear it, and it was the correct decision, by the way. Uh, the uh, the idea that the um, somehow the incorporation uh, the whole process of incorporation overturns Baron v. Baltimore of eighteen thirty three that 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 precedent was done away with so you have this various these precedents that I mean Kavanaugh is, is speaking the truth here uh, and of course then states react to that now why does this happen is the question it's not because of federalism this is where Kettle gets some things wrong it's not because of federalism it's because of nationalism. It only happens that way because we've decided, or at least the Supreme Court has usurped this power, that they're the final arbiter of everything under the sun. You have nine politically appointed lawyers on a court that get to decide every issue. And so what's happened, because we don't have real federalism, because we don't have a federal structure, because we don't have a Congress that essentially does its job and it punts everything, what's happened over time is that the Supreme Court has taken this role because Congress would just pass legislation and let the court sort it out. That wasn't the way it was supposed to work. Of course, Patrick Henry said if the Congress passes an unconstitutional law, he was hoping that the, that the Supreme Court would declare it unconstitutional. But there should have been other checks on this. And one of those checks, of course, was the states. Roe v. Wade is the incorrect decision when it comes to real federalism. This is an issue that's not delegated to the central authority to decide in any way whatsoever. And so this was a decision of the states. So the states are simply doing their job and saying, you know what? Roe v. Wade is an incorrect decision under the original Constitution. It was an incorrect decision in 1973. 
states should be able to legislate on this issue however they want to. You could have one state that does one thing on one end of the spectrum, another state that does another thing on the other end of the spectrum. And it's not for these people of other states to decide what those states, which reflect the political culture of those states, it's not of those states to do. So if you if you are an individual who wants one side, well, then you should look for it in your state. If you're an individual who wants the other side, you should look, you should look for it in your state. And if you don't like that, then vote with your feet. Move. Or try to affect change in your own state. But you see, what people want is for one group of people, whether it's a majority, a slim majority, to dictate for the rest. Well, that, that creates more conflict than what Professor Kettle is letting on to here. Ten months later, Alabama has the nation's toughest abortion ban with new provisions that make abortions illegal anytime after a fetal heartbeat is detected, often at about six weeks, before many women even know they are pregnant. Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Ohio have gone down a similar road. Of course, all these laws will be unenforceable unless Roe v. Wade is overturned. But for the first time in a long time, that seems like a possibility. It will be a fascinating bank shot from a handful of Republican-led state legislatures through the red velvet curtains of the U.S. Supreme Court to a new precedent that would remake national policy. Indeed, that's the whole point. Conservatives in these states are creating legislation deliberately designed to provoke judicial review at the highest levels. Well, what about lefties? They're doing the same thing. Uh, The whole marriage debate was the exact same thing. People were putting pressure on states by challenging it, by trying to get marriage certificates when the state said these are illegal, and that made it to a federal court decision. It's the exact same thing. It's just not the legislature's doing it, it's individuals doing it by putting pressure on the legislatures, by putting pressure on the uh, on the civil courts in those states. But this is exactly what's happening. The state affected the change at the, at the quote-unquote national level, but we don't really have a national government. It's the exact same thing, though. Or by states passing restrictive gun legislation and then trying to get the Supreme Court to decide in their favor. It's just right now the left doesn't believe they'd win these cases, so they're not doing it. But I can guarantee you, if somehow tomorrow the left somehow got a 5-4 majority on the court, you you would see all kinds of legislation coming out of the states that would be designed to get to the Supreme Court so that the Supreme Court could declare their position, the valid position in the United States, anything to the contrary notwithstanding. They would do it. The question is whether the red states leading the charge have gone too far to advance the agenda from the right. The Supreme Court doesn't like to be backed into a corner, and the justices often prefer to pick their way carefully to new precedents rather than taking a single big leap. That's especially true of Chief Justice John Roberts, who has expressed concern about the growing politicization of the court. He's nervous about the public debates discussing the court's partisan balance, and he'd likely be especially reluctant to tee up a big decision on whether to reverse Roe v. Wade in the middle of the 2020 presidential campaign. So Alabama's law might be the wrong case at the wrong time for conservatives, and it certainly fired up the liberal base in blue states across the country. I think that's a little bit of an overstatement, but uh, why? I mean, if we have real federalism, those blue states can do whatever they want, right? I mean, the Alabama decision would not make it to where these states couldn't do what they want on the issue. California could still do whatever it wants. But so could Alabama. Isn't that the beauty? That's peaceful, isn't it? Right? I mean, California, hey, see, do what you want over there. We don't really care because we're going to do what we want here in Alabama. That's being good neighbors. While conservatives ponder whether they're making the right moves on abortion, state officials on the left are struggling with a similar set of challenges. 
They're fighting their war on the turf of environmental policy. Under Trump, the Environmental Protection Agency has worked to unwind a generation of tough federal environmental regulations, and that's fueled an aggressive counter-movement in more than a dozen states. Hawaii and New York have banned a pesticide that some scientists believe causes neurological problems in children. Colorado and New Mexico are cracking down on greenhouse gas emissions from wells drilling for fossil fuels. Oregon embraced the federal standards that were in place before Trump took office and fold them to state law so it can enforce them regardless of what changes the EPA made. And California has challenged Trump's EPA on a broad front, from fuel economy standards to tailpipe emissions. It's fighting to keep the national leadership role the the state earned through the waivers it won over decades of negotiations with the EPA. At the same time, more than 250 mayors have staged a campaign opposing the Trump administration's efforts to roll back the Obama-era rule requiring power plants to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. The blizzard of environmental actions is making life difficult for quite a few individuals. Whichever side businesses find themselves on, the one thing they dislike more is uncertainty. These battles have introduced enormous long-term uncertainty about where the regulatory balance will end up. Industry groups have been pleading for some measures of standardization so they don't find themselves whipsawed between competing structures, or strictures, I should say. So, again, interestingly enough, he does bring up the left, and these leftist states are having to worry about the EPA and other things. The EPA is a nice example of nationalism run amok. Now, I know people will say, well, if it wasn't for that one for the EPA, we'd have dirty water, dirty air. Um, you're going to have smokestacks. They're going to be built that will, uh, you know, those build them high so they go into some other state. So you don't have to, I mean, federalism doesn't work here. This is the argument. But I would say the biggest issue here is whether this, if we have a top-down approach to these things, whether that's creating the situation worse or making it better. Um, I don't think it's making it better. In fact, I think the top-down approach has actually led to many people starting to say, you know what, we're tired of this. We're going to go in and oppose these things, and we're going to make sure that we work through our state and local governments to affect the kind of change we want. This is California. This is Alabama. This is Georgia. Take your pick of your issue. This is what's happening in America. He continues, Kettle continues, There have been many periods in the past century when the states, the laboratories of democracy, as Justice Lois Brandis called them, or Louis Louis Brandis, I'm sorry, Lois, Louis Brandis, it's been a long day, I was a little tired, called them in 1932, experiment with new policy strategies. When it's happened in the past, however, they created crucibles to transform existing policy into some sort of broad national consensus. Did they really? I mean, is there a broad national consensus on these on some of these issues? I would say not. Well, that is created the conflict that exists. If you didn't have Roe v. Wade, for example, you wouldn't have the same political conflict. These things create conflict because what happens is it's an incorrect decision. It doesn't recognize the uh, the political culture of the regions that have these strict restric- uh, that have these strict restrictions on uh, on uh, various forms of uh, what we would consider you know what some people call reproductive rights but essentially what comes down to is um, what you can and cannot do uh, or the, the idea is what you can and cannot do with your body but what about the baby I mean there's, there's so many things in question here That was the case in the 1990s when Republican governors such as Wisconsin's Tommy Thompson 
and Michigan's John Engler reached an unlikely bargain with President Bill Clinton to transform national welfare law. So this conflict has often led to consensus. We've got these welfare states that reformed it, and they're just trying to make things better, and that becomes welfare law, and this is a great thing, right? This is a fantastic thing. Fantastic. Great thing. This time, though, the states are pushing in diametrically opposed ways. Some are tugging hard to the right. Others are pulling strongly to the left. This hasn't happened to this degree in a very long time, perhaps not since the Civil Rights era when southern states fought a rearguard action against desegregation efforts. He talks about this, these welfare reform laws, and he said that they transform national policy. The states are driving that. Right, the states are driving national policy. But he says this time, though, the states are pushing in diametrically opposed ways. Some are tugging hard to the right, others are pulling strongly to the left. This hasn't happened to this degree in a very long time, perhaps not since the civil rights era, when southern states fought a rearguard action against desegregation efforts. Well, I would agree that federalism has disappeared. But see, it's interesting that he also brings up this issue of desegregation because essentially what happens is that this is brought up anytime you start discussing things like. Um, you say, uh, well, I think we need to uh, really look at uh, you know, federalism as a solution. Well, what about segregation? Are you going to bring that back? Are you going to do these things? Are you going to bring back these policies that the left uh, will constantly hammer over the head of the right? But no one brings up the fact that the left has really been the vanguard. I mean, he just says the vanguard. The vanguard of efforts to change things through state policy first. You look at just about any reform movement in, the, in, the, in U.S. history, it begins at the state level. And then what you get is people working outwardly from there to try to force the other states to follow their political will. Um, Kettle says, The Trump administration, to be sure, has cut back the federal government's role in many areas, but its most important influence might be the way it's fueled aggressive steps in the states to find a new federal-state equilibrium. It's not a new. It's simply... I mean, I guess you could say it's new because, I mean, there, this is something that hasn't happened, but it's not new it's simply following the, quote-unquote, equilibrium established by the original Constitution. The real action is happening out in the country where the states are riding off in different directions. There might be, well be a new balance, but it's increasingly certain where it will end up. Does it have to be about The balance could be, look, a return to federalism. A return to just saying, hey, these things are okay. Uh, you know, if... if um, if these particular states want to do one thing or another, this is okay. No big deal. Uh, because we have independent political communities, and they can reflect the will of the voters in those states. I mean, if you really want democracy, as I've pointed out in this podcast, I mean, you should want the states to be more involved. The states have more direct democracy techniques than the general government. If you want minority representation, then the states should be the place you're looking. Because, for example, Alabama, African Americans make up uh, about uh, 25 to 30 percent of the state legislature. I there's I mean there's very few African American members of the Senate. You're not talking about the same level of representation. Same thing in the House. So you're talking about very small numbers in the U.S. Congress. But we think that somehow this should be the path forward. Everything should be a battle in the Congress, and the Congress should be determining all these things. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way, and that is that is the issue here. I disagree with Kettle. I mean, look, the, the deficit politics book is, is balanced for the most part. I mean, for, for a book that came out in the 90s, this is before the contract 
with America, the Republican Revolution, all of that. And he says the Republicans have controlled the presidency. It was written before Clinton's election. Republicans have controlled the presidency and the Democrats, the Congress. And so you have this balance, but it's over partisanship, he said, was essential. Or here you have partisanship and he's like, he's worried about this. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. What happens if people really started believing in federalism and they really believe that, you know what, we need to live and let live, and if these states want to have different policies than us, as long as it's not in violation of uh, the state constitution, state civil liberties. Because, I mean, again, if you look at gun control legislation, the states can do what they want. And this is where people point out, well, we, uh, you know, the, you know, Pennsylvania allowed for gun control. Yeah, Pennsylvania did uh, back in the um, 18th century into the 19th century. They certainly did, but that's because Pennsylvania could. The federal government's another issue. All of the discussion that's taking place by the, for the federal government is all unconstitutional when it comes to firearms legislation. They cannot, they cannot disarm the population. And just by simply saying you cannot have these weapons, you are disarming the population. I've, I've done a, a complete podcast on this. On the other hand, the states could. And you look at these things that are happening. You have strict gun control measures in place in California, yet you still get horrible incidents. And this is really a, a cultural problem, not a weapons problem. And so, uh, I mean, that is the issue here. How do we deal with certain things that are going on? States could states could have legislation in effect that would uh, certainly make it harder for people to get firearms if they have mental illness. They could have all kinds of checks in place to try to prevent these things. Um, but that is something that we should be discussing at the state level. And you know, if you believe those are responsible things to do, then start getting it implemented at the state level, not the, not from the top down. Same thing with a host of other, I mean, the issues that we battle the most over are social issues. So the states could deal with those things better if we didn't have a federal court system getting involved. What we really should be talking about, as Kettle actually does say in deficit politics, is the deficit, is the budget. I mean, these are things that are real issues. They're highly problematic but the real issue then comes down to there, how much power does the general government really need? How much constitutional power does it have? Are these things really unconstitutional regardless? And of course they are. What the general government tends to do is unconstitutional. So we should really be talking about restraining that general government. And then I think you'd see a lot more peace, political peace in America, and not just um, the, uh, the outrageous things that are happening and everything is one size fits all and people get so upset. I mean, you want to have peace. I did a, a podcast episode, Why Are Americans So Angry? It's the exact opposite of what Dr. Kettle is saying here. So interesting piece. It's always fun to find something that disagrees with you and then talk about it a little bit. I, I, I don't see a problem with states going in opposite directions because at the end of the day, would this not produce a situation where Alabamians would just say to Californians, you have California the way you want. The, the catch is, though, the other side saying the other thing. He starts with criticizing the southern states who are doing things that he doesn't like. And then he goes to environmental protection laws and the states trying to say, we're going to have these EPA laws. Fine. Let them have them. EPA laws are completely unconstitutional. That's the issue again. National government, quote unquote, national government doing things that are unconstitutional. All right. So it's a think locally, act locally episode. In contrast to what Dr. Kettle says, that's what we should be doing. And I will see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>